0: Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today CIO Podcast. I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today, and I'm excited to bring you the most practical healthcare CIO insights and perspectives. We know your job is challenging. We want to help you be more successful. And today's guest, I think, is going to have some really interesting perspectives. Perspectives coming from a children's hospital, also a doctor. So we're here with Natalie Pageler, she, uh, Doctor Natalie Pageler. I should be official. I was going to say MD either. Way, CMIO at Stanford Children's Health. Welcome, Natalie.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so uh, before we dive into kind of our topic for today, tell us a little bit about yourself and Stanford Children's Health.
1: Yeah, sure. My pleasure. So yeah, so uh, as mentioned, I am uh, Natalie Pageler, the CMIO at, at Stanford Children's Health, as well as a practicing pediatric uh, critical care doctor. I'm also the fellowship director for the clinical informatics program, which stretches across all of Stanford Medicine. Wow. And uh, you asked about Stanford Children's Health too. So let me give you a little bit of background there. Um, so we are a, a tertiary children's uh, health system in the Bay Area. Um, we have a primary children's hospital, which has around 370 beds and then 60 ambulatory sites spread across the Bay Area, um, take care of a wide range of uh, pediatric and obstetric um, uh, care here, and here across the Bay Area.
0: Yeah. So I'm excited to learn more. And, uh, you know, today I, I want to kind of talk about telehealth and digital health and where what you see. And I think it will be also interesting to hear how does it work at a children's hospital versus the other, but where are you really at when it comes to telehealth and digital health adoption? What have been some of your biggest successes?
1: Yeah, well, we had, we've had a, a fairly long history of trying to implement telehealth. Uh, it started with one of our um, one of our really passionate clinicians, Bill Kennedy, a urologist who uh, was piloting telehealth programs over a decade ago. Uh, but of course, um, we had we had been ramping up telehealth prior to the COVID pandemic, and the COVID pandemic really launched our program like it did across
0: across the country and the world. The ramp up uh, was a little faster than you expected. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we, we flew right through our goals for the year last year. Uh, we we had been doing uh, about. Three thousand visits a year. We were been climbing each year, and you know, tripling.
0: Excited, right? Three thousand was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And
1: and yes, of course, we are now forty x that. We I think in the in the course of last March. We went from about 20 visits a day at the beginning of the month to over to 700 to 800 visits a day by the end of the month and and pretty much stayed there. Um, So I would say that is definitely one of our huge successes. I I think we were well positioned because we had been developing our our program and our our technology um, so robustly and we were able to to upscale. Um, We did did, uh, upgrade our technology during the pandemic because we found a lot of new issues that were coming to play as you had these huge volumes. Um, But we also found a ton of just great successes that we weren't quite, uh, you know, kind of serendipitously discovered. So, for example, our developmental and behavioral pediatricians all switched to telehealth during the pandemic uh, and quickly realized that they were actually getting more information about the children when they were seeing them in their home environment. And to the point where they say that going forward, no matter what happens with this pandemic, that we are... Hopefully, coming out of um, that, they will continue to do their intake visits via via virtual visits because they get that much information.
0: Wow, that's a really interesting finding, uh, and that was you know part of what I was going to ask too. Like, do you think it will continue? It's a great example that the intake will continue at least. I mean, I think that's where we're getting right is more granular in what what worked, what didn't, what was more effective, what wasn't. Is, is that where you're kind of at, and where do you think that's going to go adoption wise?
1: yeah absolutely. So you know, I think we've been really excited and fortunate to see our our levels of telehealth continuing, whereas I know in some places it's it's really dropped. but um but we're continuing to see a, a large number of telehealth visits still staying in that seven hundred to eight hundred visits a day range uh, and um, and really kind of discovering what the optimal use cases are for telehealth. Um, which which types of visits are? Are not appropriate for telehealth. Which types of visits are appropriate for telehealth or or in person, and which types of visits really are just uh, are could be even better via telehealth. So really trying to sort that out going forward. Additionally, I'd say that. Um, you know, we did roll this out very quickly across the organization uh, and, and there's lots of lessons learned and kind of lots of processes to be optimized. So uh, Aaron Ballard, who is our current director of digital health right now is really doing an extensive process to uh, extensive um, uh, body of work to look at the process from beginning to end and streamline that experience for patients, providers, staff. There's a lot of work to be done there.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. What's interesting is that you're right that a lot of people have fallen off. Do you think it's your patients that are kind of demanding it because of where you're at? Or do you think it's the doctor saying, no, we're fine with it. We want to keep doing this. Or it's kind of a mix of the two. It's a
1: great question. And we're honestly trying to figure it out. I think it is a mix. So I think one, we are in Silicon Valley, many sure. of our, you know, many of our patients and families expect this type of, uh, of service and this type of technology to be in play. Um, two, we have very innovative physicians and, and, uh, and staff and, you know, and they have found things like the, the developmental behavioral pediatricians I told you about, um, similarly, another very innovative program is with our um, our uh, um, HIV. Um, pre-exposure prophylaxis program and using telehealth to reach teens that would be otherwise hard to reach for that. Um, So so some real innovation to to find the right use cases. Um, And then, you know, I think we had done a lot of work here to build out our platform and our processes prior to the pandemic. So so it really is kind of a robust support model. and, and, And in many cases, people are finding the experience as good in telehealth, if not better than in person. So I think that helps support the continued use
0: of it that makes sense i imagine a lot of hospitals rolled it out in a in a less than optimized manner and of course the doctors hated it and so then they you know they didn't want to keep doing it that makes exactly sense. yeah, yeah that, that's a great example so what's next on the radar to implement i mean i think live video telehealth visits made sense we had to do it right i mean COVID right. forced our hand what else are you looking at from telehealth or even digital health perspective
1: Yeah, so I think there's a a wide range of of initiatives. One is that process optimization that I talked about, and that's going to be critical work to continue to optimize the experience for patients, staff, and and providers. Um, Two is we're doing a really in-depth look at um, digital equity. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one of the... One of the advantages of digital health is that it can reach patients who may have been harder to reach, but it may also exacerbate the digital divide. And so um, uh, Lisa Chamberlain, one of our um, incredible advocacy leaders, has been helping to lead an entire group to delve into the data and looking at who might be left behind in this in this digital transition um, and trying to figure out how can we help reach some of those patient populations who are are unable to access digital health in the same ways as our other populations, so that's that's a piece of it. And then, um, you know, also just continuing with this um, with this work, I think, you know, we we all want to take take healthcare to where the patient is and where they need it. Uh, and in pediatrics, in particular, that can be incredibly important because pediatric specialists are few and far between. So it's not uncommon for our patients to have to travel three or four hours for a 15 minute follow-up visit. Uh, and so I think in pediatrics in particular, um, trying to lessen the disruption on the child and the family's life, um, is a major goal for us. And, you know, we know that, um, when when a patient has to come for a full day, spend a full day coming for a visit, they miss school, they miss extra, extracurricular activities, their parents miss a full day of work, it's a major imposition on a family. Yes. So we're really continuing to try to take healthcare that was inpatient that can be moved ambulatory, healthcare that was ambulatory, that can be moved to home, and trying to switch to this um, more continuous, supportive mode of healthcare delivery from the historical reactive intermittent healthcare delivery. And that includes things like thinking about home monitoring, thinking about um, uh, um, you know more more virtual visits, more asynchronous virtual visits, um, asynchronous um, virtual consults, all the all this entire package to try to again to move healthcare to the patient when and where they need it.
0: It's so easy to say that stuff on a podcast, but it's so much harder to actually do, right? Like, Absolutely. you know, w- whether it's culture, whether it's you know, the it's not even the technology usually; it's the culture, it's the everything. business, it's everything else. Uh, so, but it's great that you're working on it because it's so important.
1: Yeah, and especially in pediatrics, I think there's a whole nother layer of challenges that we have to work through. That you know, it's it really is kind of when you start trying to implement any of these pieces, it's where the rubber meets the road. So, so for example, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of work uh, trying to trying to implement home monitoring in pediatrics. Um, there are a few good examples in PEDS uh, where manual home monitoring programs have done been done very successfully. So, okay. uh, single ventricle, a very complex heart disease. Um, has traditionally had a a very manual home monitoring program that significantly decreased the the mortality rate for that, for that population. But it literally required a nurse practitioner calling the family every day and saying, okay, look in your notebook and tell me what Monday's weight was and what Monday's oxygen saturation was, and now Tuesdays. And so, you know, very error prone, very time intensive. Um, And so looking to take that type of, of, program and make it virtual, um, decrease the errors, make it easier, more efficient, um, more current. Um, but when you start looking at Pete's, you know, babies don't carry iPhones. So uh... they don't.
0: <laughs> I thought they were coming out of the womb with an iPhone these days. So,
1: I wouldn't be surprised, right? If, if it's um... going to happen
0: anywhere, it's going to happen at Stanford. That's for sure. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Every baby comes with their own iPhone. It's gonna have their um, own chip implanted. <laughs> in. Yeah, that, that's a different world. One, one day, uh, no, actually, I hope we never get there. But anyway, <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. But you know, but that presents a real problem when you talk about okay. you know giving patients access to their data and, and using you know their their mobile devices to to monitor or connect to monitoring devices. We have to do everything. In a, in a unique way, and there there aren't pediatric um, devices that are Bluetooth enabled in the same way they have in the adult world. Babies and young children usually usually don't have their own their own mobile devices, and then you're working through a proxy. You're using the parent's device, mm-hmm. um, and you have to be able to sort the data, separate the baby's data that's going through mom's or dad's device from the mom or dad's data, and so it gets really complicated. And then you add on the adolescent uh, use case, where adolescents are at this very unique stage of going from completely dependent on their parents to a hopeful autonomy, and um, and in California they have some very robust state laws around what adolescents should have privacy around and so trying to separate all that data and and create you know that proxy workflow and make sure the adolescents have privacy where they need it gets very complicated
0: I can't believe the two-year-old didn't do their daily blood pressure check. You know, <laughs> exactly. the message reminder didn't work <laughs> to get them to do it. I mean, I was going to give them a gold star for compliance. For <laughs> <10-day> streak, right? <laughs> it's so fascinating to think about from a kid's perspective. Right? A whole new world yeah, is that the big challenge? I mean, I, you know, is some of these technology slash caregiver uh, related things, or are there other things that are holding back what you really want to implement or or maybe that you'd really like to, but it's not there? or is it other things like reimbursement or or you know even just time or even willingness at your organization? <laughs> like what are those things that you're like, if I could solve this, I could push this forward much quicker?
1: Yeah, it's, it's all of those. Um, You know, I I think maybe not the willingness piece. We definitely have very innovative faculty and staff who really want to push care forward. And, and we have a patient population for the most part that is very willing to, to experiment and and try new things with us. Um, But, you know, so definitely thinking pediatric device, any pediatric device development is a major issue. And there are lots of different organizations, including our innovation team here, looking at how to, how to sponsor better pediatric device development. Um, The proxy Workflow and the adolescent confidentiality pieces are incredibly challenging. We've been we've been really trying to help lead the discussions across the nation with the AAP, with Children's Hospitals Associations about how best to handle adolescent data privacy. But that's a a a huge body of work that's ongoing, especially in light of the 21st Century Cures Act. Mm -hmm. Um, And then reimbursement models, you know, pediatrics has much different reimbursement models than than the adult space. Um, We are, you know, much more dependent on on Medicaid than Medicare. Um, And there's a lot more kind of still fee for service models and not so much of the at-risk models, which sometimes get a little bit more difficult to experiment in. It's, you know, I think there's pluses and minuses of all the different models, but it's everything is a little bit different in pediatrics, which adds a whole nother layer.
0: So are we seeing the same digital health technologies with the adolescent populations as the older populations, you know, blood pressure cuff, O2, measures, right, like, you know, scales, I mean, or, or are there other ones that are pretty unique to the adolescent population, and, and how does that adoption curve differ?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think in adolescence for, for devices, I think it depends on how big the adolescent is, and whether or not they can use the adult device, um, but again, I think it gets to be kind of this, um, these
0: the adolescent proxy workflow adolescent parent workflows um and And is it because the devices aren't big enough too or is it because in the fda clearance they're like we're not touching kids kind of like they did with the vaccinations right like is that or you know is that the challenge
1: yeah it it depends so I, i think for for um for Devices, I think, if it if it fits and it works, then that's that's you're, then you're okay. I think it gets that gets to be a much bigger problem in the smaller population. So, yeah, sure, sure. um, so for the babies and children, that's where we run, really run into device issues. Um, but for teens, like, there's a lot of people. You know, you, you start dealing with um with COPPA, the Children's Online um, Privacy Protection um, Act, and and like what types of um you know how do we keep teen data data private? How do, do teens have their own, their own mobile device? Do their parents know that they have their own account? Um, Are they allowed to have their own account? Um, Does, does the, does the teen, you know, I think adolescent compliance is a huge issue. Um, And so if you're going to try to set up a home monitoring program and you're going to try to have the adolescent be in charge of it, are they keeping their device with them? Are they keeping it up to date? We've got a really robust diabetes digital health program and a lot of our adolescents are using that but we're constantly running into issues where um, you know they they've disconnected from from their their glucose home monitoring program or something's not working with their phone or they lost it um, and then suddenly we lose that we lose that feed so it's just yeah. kind of adding all the complexities of being a team um, onto this already complex you know digital
0: workflow yeah that makes sense and uh from a compliance perspective, that, that, that's interesting, right? Uh, you know, it's just so many different things that we don't think about as adults that should be pretty responsible. <laughs> Underline the should, I guess, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of adults that act like kids too. So maybe we can learn from you. (laughs) Once we figure it out, we'll share it with the rest of the world. I'm talking about myself mostly. (laughs) Well, let's shift gears a little from kind of digital health, but, you know, kind of a, a CMIO, what's the key to leading a successful project? What's some learnings, you know, for other CMIOs, CIOs that are out there listening?
1: Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think it's all, everything is people, people, people. Uh, And so I think, you know, at your, at your very, very local level, making sure that you've got great relationships with your IS or IT team. I am actually, you know, there's so many different reporting structures. So I report to our CIO. um, I'm an impart and part of our just Amazing uh, IS leadership team and uh, very integrated within our department. I, I run I I run a portion of the department. Run the the Epic training or EHR training team uh, and our clinical informatics team um, within that department. So I'm very tightly integrated, which which helps uh, tremendously for moving any any informatics work forward. Um, and then the partnership across the organization. So um, so you know if you're trying to implement a project successfully that opt- operational and clinical ownership is absolutely critical. And of course I'm spanning the world between the IS and the clinical teams, but uh, you know, I have my own, my own small sphere of experience and it's really important to make sure that I'm partnering with the right operational and clinical leaders um, for any major project. So I think that's key. Uh, And then, you know, I'm Stanford Children's as part of Stanford Medicine. So also having those right the, the right relationships across Stanford Medicine. We just rolled out the 21st Century Cures Act like everybody else in the nation. Uh, and we had a, a really tight-knit team with our compliance team and the, the CMIOs at, at both um, hospitals or both healthcare systems and the operational leaders. And I think that collaboration was what, what was what helped us move that forward in a, a very effective way. Um, and then taking it to the even bigger sphere, right, is the networks across the you know across the state, across the region, across the nation. And, and that's been incredibly helpful, especially in pediatrics. So again, kind of referring to the 21st century cures um, rollout, we uh, formed a pediatric informatics group across the state of California, Cindy Kelbs down at Rady and I um, helped lead that, but it was incredibly helpful to get all of these informatics leaders across the state together to say, hey, we're all implementing the 21st Century Cures Act. We're all in California with these very strict California state adolescent privacy laws. How are, we, how are you all navigating it? How can we learn from each other? How can we create a, an approach going forward? And, and similarly, having those conversations again with my friends you know, across the nation, with the AAP, mm-hmm. with the, chi- the Children's Hospital Association, um, I think really helps inform uh, the right approach. And I think that's again, especially important in pediatrics where the children's hospitals are kind of few and far between.
0: Yeah, there, I imagine there's a nice bond. I've I've seen it a few times with children's <laughs> organizations. It's like, oh wait, you're oh, we can talk. <laughs> it's like you have your own language, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's
1: a it's a it's an it's an amazing atmosphere, both within the hospital and then across children's hospitals where, you know, everybody's in, in this in this work to make children's lives and families' lives better. So it, there's a lot of sharing and collaboration that goes on. I think more so in this space than maybe some other spaces.
0: Yeah, that's fair. What what career advice would you give to someone who you know is you know would like to be a CMIO like you? Uh, you know, I I think we can talk about the elephant in the room. There's not enough female CMIOS either, right? So uh, you know, what, what's some career advice you'd give to someone who who wants to be the next uh, Dr. Pageler CMIO?
1: yeah I think uh, I, I think there's so many different ways to a- approach this role and I think uh, and I think there are more and more formal ways so depending on where they are in their career, I would give them very different advice I think for a young resident or a clinician who's just thinking about this we do now have formal clinical informatics training programs uh, and the fellowships are are incredibly um, Innovative and uh, and providing incredible experience across the you know across the the hospitals. So really thinking about that type of formal training versus you know several of the of the professional organizations have have CMIO boot camps and things like that. I think it's a great way to connect with your peers and, and learn some of the formal formal training. Um, I think diving in so finding a project that you can that you can really engage in uh, and and really truly. Um, experience what does it mean to do informatics is in, incredibly helpful, uh, and then just connecting with people. So you know whether it's you know somebody who's doing the role. Um, reach out and talk to them. I'm always happy to talk to other people who are thinking about this career. Um, but then also those bigger networks that I talked about. So join the professional organizations across the nation, find your peers who are struggling with the same issues you are and start creating those collaborative networks. Uh, and I think that's what really helps us all kind of, um, rise together. And, and I've, I've, I've definitely navigated my way through this career um, with the help of a, a wide range of people who have supported me and taught me and guided me. Um, Chris Longhurst was my was a CMO, CMIO before me who, who uh, introduced me and, and taught me a huge amount. And then you know all of my colleagues across the nation. Um, so I think those connections are just invaluable and that's really what helps you be successful in this career.
0: Excellent. Great advice. And uh, thanks so much for taking time to join us here on the Healthcare IT Today CIO podcast. And uh, thanks everyone for watching. If you want to find more great healthcare IT content like this and check out the rest of the series of the CIO podcast, you can find it at healthcareittoday.com. Thanks, Dr. Pagel.
1: Thanks, John.